0: Uh, Today we are actually going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the kind of all-important passage on love, as I thought would be appropriate, but I also wanted to tie it into some of what we've been going through in Ephesians, and the passage Andrew read will help us better understand uh, chapter 13 here. I trust that you are already in 1 Corinthians, you can just maybe turn a page, if you need to, to 1 Corinthians 13, uh, because that's where we will be uh, this morning. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then I look forward to opening this text together with you. God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have here to look at Your Word. I pray that You help us that as we look at this greatest thing in all the world, love itself, this um, characteristic that comes from You, that uh, for which You are the standard itself. I pray that You would encourage us towards You, encourage us in our own love and expression of love um, towards each other. Pray especially that You would encourage our moms this morning, as they are often the greatest uh, givers of love. This morning, to both rest in Your love and continue extending it to those around them. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, dads, I don't know about you, but I can remember very distinctly the first time I really saw my wife step into loving like a mom loves. Maybe you've even heard that used derogatorily, like he had a face that only a mother could love or something like that. But we all know what it is to see that with our own eyes, right? Um, Every birth story is different. Uh, Our first one uh, was different for us in a variety of ways, both because it was different, because it was the first time we'd ever gone through it, and because it was different than what we expected. We had uh, had a normal doctor that we'd been going to, and that doctor wasn't there one time. And his uh, replacement was there just uh, because the doctor was on vacation. This was probably two months or so before Megan was to give birth, maybe a month and a half or so before Megan was to give birth. And so we went in and this guy was supposed to just evaluate her, send her on her way, and then the next time she'd be back with her normal doctor. Well this man's name was Dr. Sykes, I still remember. I have no memory of anything, but for some reason his name is stuck in my mind because he was very troubled by some stuff he saw in Megan, and we thought he was overreacting and didn't know her. So uh, he told us to come back a few days later and just to be prepared that there could be some problems. And so, we came back a few days later very skeptical of his credentials, and he immediately said, I think you need to go to the hospital. Well, that was not exactly the story that we wanted to start <laughs> our family with. And so, begrudgingly, we kind of grabbed our stuff together and went to the hospital, but, and it wasn't just a few days in the hospital to where Megan really had to, uh, by emergency, have a C-section with And it was a, a trying time for lots of different reasons, and lots of you have stories very similar more difficult or just different than that as well. But I remember it was the night before she was to give birth, and uh, she was struggling with preeclampsia, and struggling with lights and sounds and just about anything. But you could see her just fighting through. They'd given her some very strong medication that mentally really put her in a hard spot. Uh, but that next morning, one of the hardest things for her was because she had gone through so much. They separated her and Ella for just a couple of hours while they tried to get, make sure Megan was healthy. So I had to go by myself to go see, to get Ella and bring her to Megan the very first time. And all that pain, all the things that we had gone through together, in that moment, you could just see that Megan took her and realized everything that had happened and the reasons for that. In a sense, in that moment, there was an expression of love that was deeper because of the trial, the struggle, the suffering that she'd gone through. And to this day, there's still a bond between Megan and Ella that won't be replaced. You know what it's like to see that in a mom, don't you? That kind of love is no accident. Uh, It comes from our maker. It comes from God himself. Of all the things that God chooses when he chooses to describe himself, God says in 1 John, he is love. This is, uh, like I have as the title here, the greatest thing in all the world. The greatest of these is love, is what the Apostle Paul writes here. Uh, Now, What I wanted to do is kind of do carry along two desires. Number one, I want to further what we've been doing in the book of Ephesians, and I also want to be a real encouragement to moms. And I think this passage will nicely blend those two, and uh, so I trust there'll be encouragement on both of those fronts. This really is what God wants to grow in us, that kind of selfless love that especially when it comes up against adversity and struggles and pain presses through for the sake of the other. And that's really the kind of love that God wants to grow in all of us, it's the kind of love that we see in those moments of uh, tender motherhood. This is the kind of love that is Christian love. It's the kind of love that's expressed to somebody when there can't be any reciprocal love given back. In that moment, what would Ella have done, our little one, to express love back to Megan? Well, there was nothing she could give her back in that moment. But that's exactly the kind of love God wants to, get, to grow in each of us today. He wants to grow in us a love that doesn't look for a hand back, but instead reaches towards, especially when the person can't return. This is the kind of love God wants to grow in us, especially through adversity, through trial, through struggle, through the sleepless nights. That's the kind of love that God wants to grow in us. Now, I did mention that this is in context of 1 Corinthians 12, which is why I had Andrew read this. So if you would, can we just gather a little bit of context together, because this will help us better understand how this fits in especially to our Ephesians series and into the the kind of the point that where Paul means that this wasn't written specifically just to mothers, and so it's important for us to listen to why Paul wrote it the way he did. Uh, In a very brief overview of chapter 12, Paul has taught us that God gives gifts. Those gifts are people, but they're also things that God gives to people who are Christians, and they're to be used for the advantage of others. Verse 7 is really important in understanding that. It simply says this, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit, that means a gift from the Spirit, for the common good. Or we could translate it very literally, that for could be translated for the advantage of everyone else, for the advantage of the common good. So in other words, God has gifted the church with a variety of people, and a variety of gifts for each of those people who are born-again Christians. But those gifts are not to be used for ourselves, but rather for others. This is where this kind of selfless love comes in play. God also then gives these diverse gifts to make us unified and interdependent, or intradependent, perhaps, is a better way to say that. And that's what we see through the rest of chapter 12, where God actually encourages us with our diversity that that diversity is supposed to bring together in unity. As anybody knows, with diverse things, it only works, though, if there is something to bond you. And that bonding agent is love for others. That's exactly where Paul's going, and what really the rest of the, the chapter 13 that we're going to be looking at focuses in on. When it comes to a church or when it comes to a family, these kinds of diversities within a family actually can create a unity, but only if it's leaning in towards each other with this kind of uh, characteristic that God wants to grow in us of love itself. I remember when I was, I think I was in uh, eighth grade, I woke up suddenly on a Saturday morning because our entire house was shaking and there was smoke everywhere. The reason was because a lightning bolt hit the rafters in our house. And it, upon reflection, became one of the funniest things in our, story, in our family's kind of history, because it brought out what you would expect out of everyone. Everyone kind of did exactly what you thought they would do. Imagine if that happened in your home. You're thinking, all right, this person would be like, it's not a big deal, who cares? Another person would be running around trying to mother everyone and help them all. Well, I remember being woken up early in the morning, and we're all running around trying to find stuff. My older brother grabbed his computer, grabbed his headphones, went out to our barn, sat down and just started coding. He was a, he was a software developer and was like, guys, this is not a big deal. It's not a big, not a big problem. My oldest sister immediately sprinted to find my, my youngest brother, who was, I think, 17 or years or so younger than her, ran to find him and, and like cradled him and carried him out. My one brother, who at the time was very into his fashion, went and selected all of his favorite clothes and put them on and then went outside. One of my sisters, who was very pious, went and grabbed all of her Bibles and journals and like, covered them in the rain and walked outside. And Everyone just did exactly what you would expect. I won't tell you what I did. Right? Um, I'm the one telling the story here. All right. But in those moments, what you really see is the diversity in a, in a home. Everyone kind of has their own little place and spot, especially with a, a family of nine or so and seven, seven kids. So as, as we see in any kind of home or structure or church, those kind of diversities can kind of pick at each other. But what it did in that moment upon reflection is it made us all really laugh and enjoy those things because it's actually through that diversity where there can be a lot of real unity. That's what God wants to grow in us with all of our idiosyncrasies. And don't we have those? Look at our our body here, the different ages and backgrounds and cultures that we come from, the different um, religious and spiritual backgrounds, the different uh, experiences right now. All of those things can be things that divide us. But instead, God actually wants to, to draw us together. But the only way that happens is if we express this kind of love, biblical love. That's what I want to encourage us with today. Now, if you look at with, with me at uh, chapter 13, that's where we'll be the rest of the time, and most of that time will be in verses 4 uh, through 7. Let's go ahead and just read chapter 13, 1 through 7, because it's, it's really a full-packed verse, and it, we're going to have to move fairly quickly to get through uh, these, but I think in a way that can be a real encouragement to us. Chapter 13, verse 1 says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, he speaking about spiritual gifts that he's just been talking about, and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, in other words, things that God has yet to reveal, I know them because of spiritual gifts. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And now he gets into the active description of love, where we'll really spend most of our time to get together this morning. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He goes on to speak about love never ending. And finally, in verse 13, he says, The greatest of these faith, hope, and love is love. The greatest thing in all the world is this kind of biblical love, this God like love. And that's what I want to encourage us with this morning to both step into God's love for us and to express this uh, to each other as well. Now, let's kind of get a brief survey of the land. And then, as we take through, what I'd like to do is just, again, Kind of hit both of these things, both the book of Ephesians with our love for each other and also Mother's Day and really encouraging you in that love. So I'd like to do those both together, but it'll take us to really kind of get a bird's eye view first to be able to do that in a way that's effective and probably more importantly biblical and biblically based. So let's just quickly look. Even though we see all these action verbs in verses 1 through 3, kind of the normal thing that we would ask is already brought up by the Apostle Paul. That is that it's possible to be active and not really be loving. He's going to encourage us with some 15 verbs of action here in just a few moments. But before he gets there, he wants us to know it's possible to have a lot of this kind of activity and yet in your own spirit to not at all be loving. And don't we know that in our own experience? He gives two categories of this. He says, first of all, it's possible to exercise gifts without love. You saw that in the the tongue uh, example or in these prophetic examples of gifts that were given to these people. But he says, even if you were to exercise the superlative gift And the superlative ways, and you didn't have love, it actually really wouldn't be loving. It wouldn't bound you together. It would actually continue to drive you apart. So the encouragement really here is that we ourselves should exercise our gifts with love. Secondly, then, he says it's possible to give possessions or even your own life without love, giving these extreme examples of burning your own body for the sake of others. And yet, if you don't really do it for the sake of others, it is nothing. It counts as nothing. So with those out of the way, as that that uh, that kind of excuse that we might throw up, well, yes, being active in love doesn't necessarily mean you're loving. Now Paul turns his attention to our attention this morning, which is love. Love requires action. Like I mentioned, there's some 15 verbs. And it's hard to really piece this apart because it's just like gunshot over and over again. Paul just ticks through these as quick as you can. But in looking through these and listening to other men preach this text and other commentaries, commentators, I think there's a way we can break this out that will be really helpful and instructive for us. We're going to break up these 15 verbs like this. And again, this is our overview. First of all, we're going to have two foundational postures of love. He starts in verse uh, four like this, love is patient and kind. And I think that's really an encapsulation of everything he's about to say. And I'll show you that here in a few moments. Secondly, then he looks at five self-denials of love. You might notice those. It says in the rest of verse 4, it does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. That's three so far. It is not rude, and it does not insist on its own way. So some things that love isn't, that it doesn't do, that we might say it denies itself of certain things. Thirdly, then we have three self-refusals. Now, if you're going to keep track here, we're only going to have 14, and that's because one of the self-refusals he gives a positive verb for, all right? So there's four in here technically, all right? Three or four self-refusals of love with one of those positives. You see that again here in verse, the end of verse 5. It is not irritable or resentful. These are things that it refuses to do. Um, It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And then finally, there's four universals he gives. These are marked with the word all. Look at verse 7. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. So with these kind of categories, let's... Walk through these slowly, and we'll spend the most time actually on these first two since they're so important, and really kind of the summary of everything he's about to say. This is the kind of love God wants to grow in our homes. This is the kind of love God wants to grow in our families. It is first and foremost a love of action. In those moments when I saw Megan really step into that motherhood, it it required action, did it not? I'm sure Nicole feels that every single night, all night long. There's a lot of action required This kind of love, this kind of action is what God wants to grow in us. And there's kind of two sides to his basic summary. And the first is this, that love is, in our word we have here, is patient or long-suffering. This is actually how God chooses to describe himself. You might remember Moses actually says, God, I want to see your glory. And one of the first things God says about himself is that he's long-suffering. In Hebrew, it's actually long-nosed. The idea would be like, like you'd have steam coming out of your mouth for anger. The word passion is in this word, in both Hebrew and Greek, And the idea is that you're long. It takes a long time for you to blow steam, all right, for you to get angry. God himself describes himself this way. Like Second Peter 3.9 says that God is, God is slow to anger. That's this word, patient, slow to anger. It might be very easy for us to say, well, I don't know that I know of anybody like that who would arouse anger or passion in me. But that really is what this word is talking about. Patient toward people who arouse passion or anger. And I I laugh because who are the kinds of people? These aren't foreign aliens in our world, right? Who are the kinds of people who arouse passion and anger in people? We can all point to one. Everyone can point to themselves, right? We're the kinds of people. Living with other people arouses this kind of passion and anger. This word, patient or long-suffering, is used always in context of other people, of relational things. So who are the people who arouse this kind of passion or anger in you? God says that his love looks at those people and it's very slow to be angry. It's very slow to respond like this. There was an agnostic in 1899 whose name was Robert Ingersoll. And he made a living traveling around the country, basically trying to debunk the Bible and get born-again Christians to doubt God's words. He was known for saying all kinds of profane things about God in his kind of pinnacle moment of all of his speeches. He would cry out, If there is a God, I challenge him to strike me dead in the next five minutes. Well, one wise pastor heard of this and simply remarked, Does the gentleman really think he can exhaust the long-suffering of the eternal God in just five minutes? It was actually a mark of God's long-suffering, not of God's absence, that God did not strike the man dead. And isn't this exactly what God does? This is the heart of God. God himself responds to us like this. Imagine the worst person you can when it comes to somebody who tries to dethrone God and reject God in their life. Where do every one of their breaths come from? Every one, the Bible says. God says, breathe. That's the way that God describes his interaction, even with our bodies. How about the rain that they've experienced? Where has all that rain come from? God is patient and kind the just and the unjust. Jesus tells us in the book of Matthew. Where does every heartbeat they experience come from? Where does the energy that they use to defy God come from? God says it comes from him. God is this self-expression of long-suffering and patience. Now you might say, well, as I think through people who arouse passion and anger, maybe let's first of all turn to the moms in this room. Isn't it usually our own children or dads the same? It's usually those we're with. It's usually our family members, isn't it? This kind of love, this kind of passion that is often at odds happens with those kinds of tensions. In a sense, biblical love can't be expressed fully without that kind of animosity. When somebody doesn't deserve it, that's when true biblical love steps in. We might say it like this. Anyone can love somebody who's kind to them, but it's actually when the person is frustrating to you or annoying to you or... or inconvenient for you. That's the time where biblical love really steps up. How do we develop this kind of God-like response, though? Well, it is actually by looking at the source of this love. It's by looking at God himself, by tracing the path of God's love in us through the gospel story to us. This kind of love, this is foundational to the way that God speaks. It's foundational to biblical love. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, says that we should be patient, long-suffering towards all men. Colossians 3 describes it as part of the salvation package, as it were, that we receive, and that we put on this patience like a garment. Ephesians 2 describes it as something that comes along with the walk that we've been elected to, that we've been called to. This love, this patient love, is actually part and parcel with Christian faith itself. This is what God says you'll see in any true believer. Now, you might respond, well, I don't get angry. <laughs> I'm not a person who's quickly aroused to anger. The word here that's embedded in this word for long-suffering is actually the word for passion. And that, those passions show themselves in many ways. Some of us might blow up, but many of us, I don't think that's probably our disposition. But the same kind of passions are present in us, whether it's bitterness or pride or kind of silent resentment or seething anger, or just simply delight in revenge. This is the kind of passion that, that Paul is talking about here, that we are to be slow to. As you look around in your own homes right now, I'm sure all of us would say, you know what, that really is my temptation, to get angry, to blow up, to be seething, to be quietly hostile. One of the things that we were laughing at recently is, although it won't be fun soon, is our youngest, Jude, has recently taken to giving us all the silent treatment when he gets angry. All right, he just refuses to look at us. You'll ask him a question, and we discipline him for it, but behind his back, chuckle just slightly, because he's very open in his his silent treatment. This is the kind of passion that might display itself in you, where violent outbursts of anger may not be there. This is the kind of thing that biblical love cuts against. This is core and foundational to the kind of love that the Bible describes. Again, how do you? How do you grow this kind of love, especially when we look at a home environment or a church environment? As you look around to the people, the little people in your homes that cause these kinds of responses in you, the, problem, the, the solution isn't to look within yourself to try to drum up love for them, but rather to look up at the source itself that actually expose yourself to God's love. And in a sense, take in those rays and let it change you and impact you. This kind of love requires something. It actually brings along with it things like humility. I'm not more important than this little one. These are the kinds of things God wants to grow in us, and they're embedded in this idea that love itself is long, suffering, slow to anger, it's patient. The second foundational posture that love, biblical love, takes, whether in the home or in the church, is that love is kind. In other words, there's a sense in which bearing long with people may end up kind of creating in you a kind of stoic uh, inaction that refuses to be angry at people, but does not step towards them in any kind of positive fashion. And so on the other side, Paul says, foundational to this biblical love is not just, I refuse to blow up or get angry or seethe in my heart against somebody, but I actually positively step towards them in kindness. He says, love itself is kind. Now this is translated in lots of different ways in our English Bibles. A lot of times it's translated like this, it's easy. Jesus says my, lo- my yoke is easy, that's this word. It's easy or it's good or it's gracious, that that's how you are towards people. You're easy, you're kind, you're gracious. This is the idea that love itself is kind. Not just that i did not determined to do anything mean to somebody, but that I actually positively step towards them with this kind of soft tenderness. Like I mentioned a moment ago, God expresses himself this way, that God, we're told, using this word, is kind to the unthankful and the evil, Luke chapter 6 tells us. Romans 2 chapter 4 tells us that God actually does this for a reason. It says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to, remember the word, and here in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, this is one of the three times where these two words, aside from 1 Corinthians 13, are used together. And it's used of God. God's kindness and his long-suffering are meant to actually draw us towards him in repentance. A lot of the reasons why we will reject love out of hand in our own homes, as, especially as a discipline measure or in the church, is because we say, yes, but they're wrong and they need to repent. So therefore, I will not be slow to anger. Rather, I will be quick to anger. Isn't that often the, the rationale? It's for their good, you we say. Well, here, God himself and his own expression of his characteristics in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, tells us that it's actually sometimes kindness and patience that draws us into repentance. Isn't that true for you? So many of us came to faith exactly because of that kind of kindness, You or I were running away from God and in a moment, in an instant, perhaps for you something tragic, where you thought your life was gone, God instead reached out in kindness to you. And what did that generate in you by God's spirit? Repentance. In our own homes, isn't this the kind of love that actually draws our children in? This kind of motherly, biblical love, right? But yes, does dole out consequences, of course, but does so in a way that's easy or kind or good. God himself is kind to the unthankful and the evil. I mentioned that this is used, these two together, patience and kindness, is used in three different locations outside of First Corinthians 13. One is of God, and I just mentioned that in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where God actually expresses these things to draw us into repentance. It's also used of spirit-filled people in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, being tender to other people. This word itself is just used by itself, this word kindness in Ephesians that we're in right now, we're about to get to, where it says that we should be kind and then explains it like this, tender-hearted towards other people. So it's used of God. It's used, these two are used together of spirit-filled people in Galatians chapter 5. And then finally, it's used of a biblical minister in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, where Paul's defending his own, uh, his own ministry. And he describes himself with these two words as being patient and kind with them. These are the things that God wants to grow in every Christian, certainly in pastoral leadership, because they come from God himself. This uh, week, as I was studying this, I ran across a quote from Hudson Taylor. You might know him as the, the great missionary to China of the 19th century. And When he was asked what it took to create a missionary who would be effective, He said, well, there are just three things you need. He said they have to be long-suffering, they have to be long-suffering, and they have to be long-suffering. This is true of all Christian ministers, and it's really true of all Christians. This is what God grows in us. These two foundational postures of being patient, that is, slow to anger, long-suffering, and then positively reaching towards people in kindness, this is what God grows in the Christian. And in a sense, these kind of encapsulate everything else he's about to say. Now, I want to encourage, especially those of you who say, you know what, maybe especially the moms in here who say, you know what, this is something I really struggle with, this kind of selfless love. You describe a mom's love like that, and in my own spirit, I know I want to be that, but I also know I'm not really that. Maybe nobody else knows, but it grates at your own spirit and your own heart. And I encourage you with what I've already said a couple times now, which is the answer for that is not inside of you. It's actually outside of you. The answer isn't even just intellectual. What you don't need is just more information or like a step-by-step guide. This kind of love, in a sense, is better caught than it is taught. And it's caught by the source itself, by the source source himself, better said. God himself expresses his love to you like this day in and day out. Like I mentioned, God himself takes credit for actually every beat of our heart, every breath that we breathe, every meal we partake of. Every goodness we receive is said to come through Christ and the gospel. It's actually meditating on that that generates this kind of love. This isn't something you do. It's something God does in you. So if you yourself here this morning might be discouraged by this description of love or say, I want to do that, but I know I lack. The answer is actually to look up, to look at God himself, and in that moment to actually see what it looks like, experience that love, and then, in a sense, become God's vessel through which he can share that love with others. Love is patient. Love is kind. I mentioned we had a couple other categories, and these we'll move faster through um, for sake of time, because those first two were so foundational. I wanted to expand on them a little bit more. Secondly, though, we have these five self-denials. These five self-denials. Let's look at verse 4, uh, the end of verse 4. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Our translation kind of puts them together with an or. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. We'll get into that in the next little section. Let's kind of take through these one at a time. You'll see, first of all, that it refuses, and I'm putting it like this, to act zealously for itself. In other words, these kinds of self-denials are inherent in love where you say, I will not rise up for myself. And the first word here is envy. The word itself in Greek is actually the word for a zealot, somebody who's very passionate. And it's used positively when they're passionate about good things, and it's used as envy when they're, uh, when they're passionate for their own self-interest. And you can see why Paul would mention this in the context of spiritual gifts that are supposed to be used for others and not ourselves, because this expression of our gifts should be done with this kind of without this kind of zealousness for our own self-interest. It's actually used in chapter 12 verse uh, 31 just right before this talking about earnestly desiring that's the same word these spiritual gifts earnestly desiring this better way this word zeal or or passion or envy says to refuse to act zealously for yourself. In other words there's no strong self-desire to promote yourself in this kind of love. Secondly, it refuses to, and I'm putting it this way, to self-market, to be your own self-marketing agent. He says it like this in verse uh, verse four, love does not envy or boast. And that word itself has the idea of ostentatiousness. In other words, love does not parade around your own accomplishments, even if they're true. It's so easy in our own conversations with others to, to do exactly that, isn't it? To promote ourselves, to market for ourselves, to be your own marketing manager. This kind of ostentatious or self-congratulatory spirit is not present in biblical love. Now, the reason that this is often the case, why we often rise to this, is maybe because we feel that we need other people's approval. Maybe you grew up in a home with very little of that kind of kindness shown to you. and So all throughout your life, you've just earned and, and wanted that kind of, yearn for that kind of uh, approval of others. God says that in biblical love, that's not the case. We're not promoting ourselves, but instead, we're doing all these things for the benefit of other people. How do we typically do this today? I think probably the most obvious way, since most of us aren't going to go around usually openly bragging on ourselves. It's more the kind of hashtag humble brag that you see around, isn't it? And sometimes that can be very internal, but sometimes it can be very public. Which one of us has not seen on social media those exact kinds of posts. Of like, here's the horrible day I had and how I survived over all of it. All right, and we all kind of roll our eyes collectively, right? But this is present in all of us, isn't it? This desire for people to notice what we've gone through. Here, Paul says that biblical love does not have this kind of self-marketing nature to it. Thirdly, that biblical love refuses to self. If the first one we just mentioned, this boasting, is public for other people to see, this word self-inflate, and the way our translator does it here is it's not arrogant, is actually more of an internally focused word. In other words, you might even have just a moment ago said, I would never post about stuff like that. And I always roll my eyes at those people. But when I see them, I think, I'm so much better than that. I would not do that. That's actually the spirit he's talking about here. It's actually the internal evaluations of ourself against other people to say, I wouldn't do it like that. This is the kind of thing that biblical love drives out. It refuses to do. It denies itself in. Fourthly, refuses to act inappropriately. I will not act inappropriately. The word here in our translation does it is rude. It's just the word for disgraceful. And it usually takes one of two forms in the New Testament either talking about being rude or like discordious, just kind of mean-spirited, and maybe you've met people like that and said, this is just who I am. It's how I am. I'm just blunt with people. This is not part of biblical love. Or sometimes it takes this kind of form in the New Testament of being like eccentric or sticking out. And we all know people too who delight in that kind of thing. They like to kind of be different than everyone else, sometimes just it seems for the sake of it. That's not present in biblical love. Biblical love does not, Act in that way to draw attention to itself, to stick out. There's no need to stick out and be different. Our uniquenesses are meant to serve the common good, not extract us from the common good and make us stand out. Fifthly, here, love says, I will not always have it my way. All right? I will not have it your way. It says it like this in verse 5 it does not insist on its own way, it refuses to have this. It's easy for us to be obsessed with our own rights. And on a day like Mother's Day, wouldn't it be so natural for the moms to say, like, today is my day. But I know the moms in here. That isn't, our, that isn't your spirit, is it? Even on a day like today, it's actually for your kids as you look around and say, today, what a special day to share with my family. This is the kind of love God wants to grow in all of us. It's easy to be obsessed with what fits you or comforts you, what fits your schedule or what fits your priorities. Think for a moment, just take assessment of your own thoughts as you work through a day. Isn't it so easy for ourselves to be obsessed with things like this? Well, what did they think? Or how did I do? Or, or why did they not come through for me? Or why isn't anybody saying anything for the work I put in? These are the kinds of things that biblical love doesn't do. It doesn't look in on itself and say, I have to have it my way. Or we might say it like this, I have to have my rights. Whether that's people giving us congratulations or boasting in us. There's those kinds of people. And then there's people who've actually escaped from that kind of bondage. And it really does sometimes look like they literally have been released from prison because they're no longer dependent on those kinds of external factors. They don't have to have things their way. It's okay. They're not really the center. This is what biblical love grows in us. Isn't this what Christ himself demonstrated for us? Romans 15 verse 3 says, Christ did not please himself. Paul commends his own ministry like this. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 33 he says, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. This is what God wants to grow in us. These kinds of self-denials are very active, are they not, in love? It is an active choice, a daily choice to say, no, I will not act zealously for myself. I'm not going to self-market myself. I will not inflate myself publicly or internally. I'm not going to act inappropriately or rudely or stand out from the crowd for the sake of drawing attention to myself. And I don't have to have it my way, and it's okay. These five self-denials then are are followed up with just a few more, these three slash four self-refusals. Look with me, if you would, at uh, the end of verse five. It refuses to be provoked to anger. It says this, uh, it is not irritable, and that's the word provoked or driven to an outrage. Now, there are certainly things that we should respond to with this kind of anger. I remember I was uh, hiking, and I was told when I first moved here that if you see a moose, it's it's okay, but there's one kind of moose you don't want to see. And what is that? A mama moose, all right, with her little ones nearby, all right? I was driving over the divide, uh, I think a couple years ago, coming back late from a late night soccer game, and I caught something out in the distance, and I realized, I thought it was a deer, but it was actually a little tiny moose, and it just stood up enough out of the grass that I realized it was a lot bigger than I first thought. And then I caught something out of my periphery on my left. and I turned, and there was an absolutely massive mama moose not three feet from my window. And at that point, the moose is in front of me, the little baby moose. I can't run it over. I can't go anywhere. (laughs) I can't go back. That's a frightening place to be. There is actually a reason to be provoked sometimes. But this is not talking about that kind of righteous indignation. This says that the normal diet of a Christian when it comes to things is this. It's really hard no matter how much you poke them. They will not explode. And you can see how this ties into that summary statement, slow to anger. Secondly, that they refuse to calculate wrongs suffered. And Paul uses an accounting term. Look with me at verse uh, 6 again. He says, it's not irritable that's provoked and uh, or resentful. Um, that idea of resentful is actually, and some of you might have a little note down below, like my ESV here says irritable and does not count up wrongdoing. Like I said, it's actually an accounting term. It's a term for taking down a leisure for every wrong done against you. Actually listening off in your mind, they did this and then they said that and then they did this. If you find yourself in this kind of pattern, that is not biblical love. Anger, especially righteous anger or that which claims to be, is one of the most dangerous things because It's one of the few sins you can commit while being convinced you're actually doing right. Isn't that the case? Usually, anyone who claims to have righteous indignation and doesn't, in that moment, believes they're doing righteousness when they're actually not. This is what Paul is warning us against, this kind of indignation and this kind of calculating of wrongs. If you in your own mind sit there and you know that this person you're angry against, you can just list off things that they've done to you. If you spent any time at all, you keep a ledger in your head. You've been accounting for it. Paul says that's not present in this kind of biblical life. Thirdly, he says, refuses to rejoice or joy in consequences. And the idea here would be, if you look at verse uh, 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Of course, he's not saying just that we don't rejoice when sin happens. What he means is when you have a, a, an enemy, where something in their life is shown to be true and you're like, I knew it. He says, you don't rejoice in that. But, he says, of course you rejoice that the truth has been exposed and that's kind of the positive side of this. He says, does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Yes, what what needed to happen happened, but I'll take no delight in that. These four then focus in on these kind of hostilities that are created when people rub up against people. The kind of natural responses to respond respond in joy when you see somebody getting kind of their just desserts. Paul says that's not present in this kind of biblical love. And finally, he ends with these four universals, which if he hasn't already kind of encapsulated the entirety of the Christian life, the entirety of our home lives now, he kind of pulls it all together with these four. And he simply says in verse 7, the last verse here, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This first word, love bears all things, isn't so much bearing the weight under thing. It's actually a word that means to cover. So love delights in covering up people's sins. What it doesn't mean by that is not making sure people have consequences. more like this. Let's say a family member of yours was exposed in a very public sin. You would delight in not making much of that, right? You know that their consequences are coming. You'll be with them through that. But you're not going to go around talking about it all the time. You would naturally want to cover that in a proper sense. That's the idea here. You don't rejoice and and further that kind of talk. He says, secondly, that you believe all things, believing the best of all. In other words, you're actually assigning the best motives to people. This is often really, really important when it comes to parenting, is it not? When you start to see your kids stepping into what you think is sin, it's so easy to very quickly suddenly say, aha, I knew what's happening here. But instead to say, you know what, I'm going to believe the best about them and then let them show me wrong. This is what Paul says is present in biblical love. Thirdly, that we're eagerly expecting good in other people. He says it like this, hopes all things. You're actually hoping, and again, these are all relational terms talking about, not just general hoping, but hoping in these kinds of relationships. You know what? Yes, they're in sin, but they really will come around. God's going to work on them. I believe it. And then finally, willingly stays with people in spite of their faults, and that's this final one, endures all things. That's a word for being under a weight. And again, because these are relational terms, talking about a relationship within a church, his intention here is saying, you know what, I'm going to stick through it with somebody. Yes, sometimes it hurts to be around them. Yes, sometimes it can be a trying to be in their presence, to have this kind of constant friction, but I'm going to stick it out with them. This is the kind of love that God builds in us. As we close here, I want to just mention three quick applications. First of all, that this kind of biblical love is really only possible in only possible in Christ. Uh, I mentioned these kind of two avenues today that I hope I've been able to communicate. In the Christian life, in our Christian church here, this kind of biblical love is not something you drum up from within inside yourself. It's something God shows and shares through you. But that's also the case in our homes. Could it be that a mom here today does not know Christ's saving life? And for many years now, you've tried to drum up this energy yourself to love your own children in this way. Can I tell you, that is that really is a losing battle. There is no victory on the other side of that. See, in every other expression of love that is not in Christ, we instead are acting in love, in a sense, to get something back. But only in Christ do we already have everything, and therefore can act selflessly in this love. Secondly, biblical love is central to the Christian faith. Again, these terms, these kind of overall terms of being patient and being kind are used only of God of born again Christians and of born again uh, Christian ministers biblical love is central to the Christian faith and finally biblical love is often private but importantly always seen by who? by God this is the kind of love God wants to grow in you My moms a lot of the times the love that you're required to show is just that it's private isn't it no one will ever see it no one will ever know. No one will ever be able to experience it. There is a sense in which dads are even on the outside of that. When we examine this kind of love that's to present in our homes and in our churches, it's the kind of love that really acts for an audience of just one, of God himself. And acts, in a sense, through the power of just one, God himself. As you then take these These activities, these 15 verbs, and play them out in your own homes and in our own church as we exercise our gifts for each other, for the common good, for each other. The result isn't that people look at us. Remember, that's what's not present in this love. Biblical love is actually the mark God gives to Christians. In other words, we might want to mark our own Christianity by our clothes or by our appearance. We might want to mark our own Christianity to be, uh, by a variety of external factors, but God actually says, I'll tell you what I mark Christians with. It's this, this kind of love. The kind of love that especially when people don't deserve it, or especially when people can't give back, says, I extend for you anyhow.' This is the kind of love God wants to grow in us today, and by his power he can do. Let's pray, and uh, then Nathan will come and close this in a final hour. God, how grateful we are that you've showed us this kind of love. I pray you would help us that as we examine our own spirits, our own hearts, our own homes, our own church, that you would help us to grow this love not by self-effort, but instead by looking to you, the source of biblical Christian love. And in those moments, to not then draw attention to ourselves, but instead to look back to the source, to you, so that you receive all the glory and honor and power. I pray especially for any moms in here who might themselves realize I, I need more of that. Help them not to work by their own efforts to try to drum up that energy in and of themselves, but to instead step deeper into the gospel story, to recognize their unworthiness and yet how much you love them in spite of it. And in those moments, to draw attention to the one who is love himself. Jesus' name.